World, are you ready? The 2020 version of the Olympics is happening Friday in Monaco, and we are excited. We hope you're ready. It seems like the entire world is ready for Monaco Diamond League. We're going to break it down for you in great detail. Welcome to the Monaco preview edition of the Let's Run.com Track Talk podcast. World, we hope you're ready for this meet. We are ready, and we're going to get you ready if you're not. Everyone will be ready for this meet, except for perhaps the Bowerman Track Club, which is skipping it. But this is the Monaco preview show. We're going to talk about that and much more. Sarah Hollis, one and a half marathon PR. Sandra Moen has broken a, Euro- a long-standing European record. Or has he? Tons of countries in Europe are holding national championships. Germany, Czech Republic, Portugal, but not the U.S. Josh Kerr, the man we praised in last week's podcast, has almost beaten Nigel Amos. Shelby Houlihan is struggling. God bless the Swiss and so much more. As always, I'm John, I'm joined by my twin brother, Weldon Johnson, and a staff writer, Jonathan Galt. Guys, I'm so excited for this. Oh, plus, at the end of the show, we're going to have an interview with Oklahoma State coach Dave Smith. The Cowboys have won three titles under Dave's coaching, and they are supposed to host the NCAA championships. Folks, don't give up. Pac-12 and Big 12, Big 10 may have given up on football and perhaps sports for the ball, but the Big 12 has not, and the NCAA has not. Dave Smith has just we talked to him the day of his first cross country practice, and he's still hoping to host NCAs. Yeah, it's, it was a great interview with Dave, and you guys can listen to that at the end of the show. But first, it's all about Monaco, Robert. I'm I can't remember. I think the Olympic Trials Marathon. That must be the last time I was this excited for a meet because I looked at the fields. There are some amazing races. Like we would be pumped about this women's five k and women's one thousand even in a normal year. And so for us to have it in the middle of this pandemic, uh, it's just, it's uh, a, such a big cherry for the track and field fans to watch. It's tremendous. I mean, this is a real Diamond League meet, not only head-to-head competition, they're going to have 5,000 fans in attendance. It's like the world, COVID, what's COVID? I mean, I'm really excited. You guys missed out, though, what you're supposed to be ta- talking about. Prince Albert, if you're still listening, there's still time to get us there for this meet. We will take multiple COVID tests constantly on the plane. You can fly us there. We'll 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 go on Monaco TV. We don't speak French, but we can speak English. Someone can translate for us. Anything you want, sir, Your Excellency. Yes, my neighbor, is. they're French. I can bring him with me. He can translate. This is going to be amazing, folks. I mean, so much to talk about. But before we get to the Monaco breakdown, I'm going to extend it for another week. If you missed out on the last two weeks of podcast, we've done a soft lunch of the Let's Run.com Supporters Club. You can be a founding member. It's only $10 a month. You can get the first month for $1. You'll actually save money because you can save 20% off your running shoes. We have great discounts, incredible message board features. And we're going to have started soon. We're going to have Supporters Club only content. First thing for supporters is going to be immediately after Diamond League ends, we're going to have a live video show, 15, 20, 30 minutes, where we're going to break it down, and then we're going to write our articles. So sign up now. Go to letsrun.com slash. Letsrun.com slash subscribe, Robert, is the website they should be visiting. I forgot the URL. Go to letsrun.com slash subscribe to sign up now. And if you email me at vip at letsrun.com, vip at letsrun.com, we will send you a special secret T-shirt. You, now, you must include your address and your shirt size. Folks, we've had worldwide response. I got a guy joined from Iceland. Cannot wait. He says he hopes I can send him a shirt, but he doesn't expect it. But I'm going to try because he's a big supporter. 
And everyone who signed up early, thank you. Yes, 20% off all running shoes. Very limited exceptions at pacersrunning.com. Adidas shoes have been added. And guys, Floyd's of Leadville, special discounts there now for members. We're continuing to add to the membership. And for people who signed up, we will send you the link to the Monaco show. So thanks, everyone. So let's break down Monaco, Jonathan. Earlier today, I put up your article. You are hyping this, I guess, meet organizers as well as a men's 5,000 world record attempt for Uganda's Joshua Cheptegei. Last year, he became only the second man to win the World Cross Country title and World 10,000 title in the same year or ever in their career, John. I'm not sure. In the same year. I believe Khalid Scar also won at least the Olympic and World Cross in his career, but not the same year. He ran super fast on the roads in February. I think it was 12.51. And he has said, I'm going for the world record. Now, the world record is 12.37 and change. It's belonged to the great Kenanisa Bikile. John, this is a great stat that you had in the world record. No man has ever held the world record for as long as Kenanisa Bikile. 16 years, more than 16 years. So John's written a great article previewing – Breaking down his chances, what do you think, John? I mean, the more I think about it, I just I just don't think it's going to happen. But I'm really excited about this race because this is something Joshua Cheptegei has come out and said, I'm going for this world record. He doesn't have an Olympics this year. So I talked to his manager, Yuri Vandervelden, and he was like, look, if we don't have an Olympics if and you're as good as Joshua Cheptegei, what else is there for you to do? Well, you can try to break a world record. And he's not going for some BS world record, even though, like, you know, the two mile world record is actually pretty incredible by Komen. But, like, he's going for one of the big ones, the 5K. It stood since 2004. And that's something. Look, I'm going to give Cheptegei credit. This is something Mo Farah never did. During his career, he never went out and said, I'm going to try and run the fastest 5,000 possible. And that's mainly because, you know, he was very focused on the championships and then. For whatever reason, some of the off years, like 2010, he wasn't quite good enough yet. 2014, I think he did the London Marathon that spring. And then that summer, he wasn't really totally healthy. 2018, he'd gone to the marathon. He never gave it a shot. I'm just happy someone's trying. And this is the best 5K, 10K guy in the world. When's the last time we saw the best 5K, 10K guy go for the world record? I don't think it's happened since Bekele. So I'm pretty excited for it. Yeah, there's plenty of reason to be excited. I mean, he was amazing in the 10,000 last year when he won gold, but people forget he also won the Diamond League, right, in the 5,000, smoking the likes of a bunch of 1240 mid people. So you would think in under ideal conditions, he would be in the low 1240s. Um, so, you know, incredibly exciting on that front. And also, folks, I've got John to confirm. He'd written this preview and I read it and I said, wait a minute. Pacing is critical for any of these world record attempts. Are we going to have wave-like technology? John wrote back to some people that he has contact with. Yes, wave light will be here. So he's hoping to get pacemaking for about halfway, certainly at least a mile. When Bekele set the world record, I think he had to run like the last 3,000 by himself. He's used to pushing by himself on the roads, but he will have that wave-like technology to help that carrot like a, like a greyhound, you know, chasing that rabbit. So – that is the good news. The bad news is what I've been talking about for weeks, folks. Walden doesn't want me to get to the bad news. He wants to hype this up some more. Go ahead, Walden. No, Robert, you're wrong. I'm waving at the screen because as a former pace of a world record, and you as well, 
wavelength technology is terrible. It's going to put pacers like ourselves out of jobs. Technology is bad. We need old school pacing. For those of you guys who don't know, actually, wave light's pretty cool. It's a little light or series of lights on the inside of the track, and it shows the exact pace to run. So pacers may soon be a thing of the past, although they can help break the wind, but it makes the pacing much, much easier and much more optimal. John even has all the details. He will be wearing the same shoes the Moa Red Mud ran to run 12.47. And a couple things about your article, John. Very well done on this article. It's hard for me to believe. Chapter Guy's PR of 12.57.41, that's not even one of the top 200 times in world history. So we th- I still think of Sub-13 as super, super good, but it's been done more than 200 times now, which is, is crazy to think about. But, you know... He is going to be wearing the shoes. He is going to have the wave light. I think he's in incredible shape. They said the workouts are better th- th- than what he was doing last year. But to me, the big negative is the weather. And it's just like when we had the impossible games a few months ago, and I was like, this doesn't make any sense. How are people at altitude going to beat people at sea level? The answer was they're not. And when I think about this, I'm like, I think this guy has the talent. I think he's a Bikili type talent. I think he could run near the world record, particularly with shoe technology improving over the last 15 plus years. But how is he going to run a 5K world record in high 70 degree temperature? And in my mind, he's not. I know it's not like me running a 5K. By the way, folks, I made my racing debut this year last weekend. I have averaged under seven minutes per mile for 5,000 meters, John. I've only got to extend that out to 26.2 miles, and I'll be collecting my $500 and my sub three challenge with you now it's 500 dollars if you do it what if you don't do it this is the most ridiculous bet in history but no here's the other thing quick side note robert ran a 5k and then i was like oh what'd you run he's like oh i don't know instead of using like a stopwatch or a watch on his hand that he uses to time it he was somehow using an iphone or something and it didn't time it properly i mean this is the most basic thing in track and field robert couldn't even time himself in a 5k john you've clearly never run with an apple watch by the way any, any programmers email me robert and let's run we just need to make a basic stopwatch it's hard to get the cumulative time if you're doing splits they have basic stopwatches no they they, they've been selling john, it for 100 years i've started threads on it anyways back to back to chapter guy and you know yes he's only running you know 12 minutes. So it's not like he's out there for a 10 K. No way. Could you do it in these temperatures? But um, we have it in this article. I've looked up the weather for the last four, the four fastest 5,000 meters in time. And none of them have been run run in anything lower. Two of them were run in low seventies degree temperature. The low in Monaco on, on Friday is going to be 73. The temperature is expected to be 78 or 79 erased time. So it's going to be seven degrees, six or seven degrees hotter at least than any of these other times. That is significant. What's the dew point, Robert? And the dew point is the bigger thing here, folks. The dew point in Monaco is going to be 69 or 70 degrees. The dew point for the other for the world record, when, when Bikili ran his world record, it was 20 degrees colder. The first and second fastest times ever run, people were wearing jackets in the stands, folks. It was 57 degrees for Bikile, and the dew point was 53 to 55. For, for, for Gab, it was in the high 50s, low 60s. The dew point was between 45 and 53. The highest dew point for any race was Daniel Coleman's. It was low 70s degree temperature, and the dew point was 66 or 67. All the other dew points have been, you know, 
much, much lower. Here, the dew point is supposed to be approaching 70 degrees, 69 or 70. And I've long relied on a let's run.com thread, which is like, look, if it's in the 55 or lower, go for it. If it's in the high 60s or 70s, that's going to be super, super tough. And to me, it's just going to be too hot for the world record, but I still am excited for this race. Yeah, I'm not as obsessed with the weather as Robert is, but I do think it's probably going to be one one limited factor. And, you know, I don't think it's going to be the only reason he doesn't do it. I think even in perfect conditions, 1237 is really tough, especially for a guy who, like Chep, the guy, you know, I think of him more of as, as a 10K guy, even though he's very accomplished in the 5K. But, but if I had done this, I will be fair. I like to criticize myself at all times. I'm afraid I'm wrong. If I had done the same type of analysis for the Portland race, I remember when, when Ahmed was running and I was possibly right when the gun was about to go off. I'm like, wait, can they possibly break the American record? I'm like, what's the weather going to be like? And it seemed a little bit warm to me there. But then I thought, well, Jerry Shoemaker's not going to let them run if it's too hot. I think he would just wait a day or so. So when Ahmed ran his 1247, it was over, it was warmer than these other races. It was 73 degrees. But the dew point in Portland was only 55. And I just think that's going to feel a lot lighter when you're running in a 55 dew point versus a 70 degree dew point. A couple of things. One, we should write the definitive guide to dew point and running because the dew point is more important than the absolute temperature. But yes, this is hot. Do you think a world record that's been around for 16 years can go in suboptimal conditions? It's kind of crazy. And this whole thing is kind of crazy, like crazy in a good way. To think a guy with PRs of 733 and 12.57, you know, on the track, is going to target the 12.37 world record is kind of crazy. It's just nuts. And, like, so kudos to Joshua Cheptegei. I mean, he's a world champion. You don't become a world champion without thinking big. And he thinks he can do anything. So he's like, I'm going to get the world record. And you're like, you don't even come close. Now, he has run 12.51 on the roads. That was this year, right? So it's just such a tall order to go after. And I think we all sort of agree we think he'll come up short, but he's a much better runner than Mohamed. And Mohamed just ran 1247. But conditions, you know, kind of help equalize things. So thank you. That's the reason for optimism. He, yes, he's much better than Mohamed. And therefore, I think he can run fast. To me, he, he should d- take an attempt here and then try to run in one of these other meets when the weather's going to be better. So uh, why does this have to be a one off thing? But let's move on to. Do you know how hard it is to put your like you know your heart and soul and everything into one running an all out five thousand and then just coming back and running another one like a week later? I know that like back in the nineties, Daniel Komen did this, but it's pretty much it's very very hard. Like Shelby Houlihan was complaining like ten days after her American record that oh man, I'm still feeling that five k. You can't just go and say oh let's do another one. Oh, hard, Robert. Oh, I forgot. John Kelly. I mean Jonathan Galt is an apologist for the Bowerman Track Club. We're going to get here it comes. Oh, yes. This is Rojo's rant. The world is excited for Monaco. Everyone's in Monaco except who? The Bowman Track Club. Uh, and we got a voicemail. Weldon, have you checked? What, what, I don't know if Weldon ever checks his cell phone voicemail because a buddy, uh, not a buddy, a Let's Run visitor called me and was going off on this. Is I cannot believe that the Bowman Track Club is not in Monaco. Shannon Roberry is in Monaco. Donovan Brazier is in Monaco. Plenty of Americans are in Monaco. 
but the Bowerman Track Club is not in Monaco. And this person w w was saying to me, he's like, I don't understand why Nike would allow this. Like, don't they want publicity? And he's like, if I was Mohamed or Shelby Houlihan, I would demand to go to that race. Like, you only had to extend your season for one week to stack up against the world's best. And we've been hyping this men's race for, you know, 10, 15 minutes. But it may, perhaps that's because of the sexism of Jonathan Gall, because I just took a look at this women's field. And I don't know why we're not talking about this. N none of the women have come out for a world record saying they're going for the world record. But if they did say it, I was like, my God, the women's world record could fall in, in a quality field like this. I mean, this women's field in the 5,000 is absolutely amazing. Helen O'Beary, Safan Hassan, Letzanet Kadeh. These are the three best distance runners on the planet. And I don't know why in God's name, Shelby Houlihan wouldn't want to see, you know what, 1423 under perfect conditions. Well, how does that stack up against these women? Because she needs to make a decision next year. What's she going to do the 1500 or 5,000? So Shelby, I'm sorry you retired. I'm sorry that Jonathan Galt doesn't think you need to race more than once or twice in front of five fans. I do. And I think you guys should be in Monaco. I mean, I'd like to see him in Monaco, but look, this, I'm not going to totally fault athletes like Emma Coburn's, not coming over to Monaco. Like th there are plenty of Americans who haven't come over to run these. Jenny Simpson's not there. Like there are plenty of Americans who aren't there. It's very, it's tough to even get to Europe. I'm not going to fault people who don't want to travel. Maybe, you know, and they had their whole season planned out. They tried, Jerry Schumacher tried to make the best of this. He had them run these meets in Oregon. Was it ideal? No, but I think it's nothing's going to be ideal in this season. Yes, it would be great to see him run in Monaco, but I'm going to give them some leeway in a year when they're back facing a global pandemic. John, this is pretty rich coming from Rojo. We're having a family sort of get together right now in Connecticut. And let's just say Robert was very apprehensive to, to get here. He came up for one day. Many members of his family didn't come. And now he's going off on the Bowerman Track Club for not flying... 5,000 miles to Europe to race during a global pandemic to each their own. I really wish they were in Monaco because, you know, it's not an apples to apples comparison, but they have been shown that they, ha they have been racing. So, and they're young and healthy. If you're going to be racing, go race the best. Please. And I love Jerry and I, I love the group, but come on, this is the same group. Well, then you'll hear about this later in, in the Dave Smith interview. They've had Sinclair Johnson fly from Oklahoma to Oregon to run a 210, 600 meters to fulfill her Nike contract. People are not going to Monaco because they're not, not going to Monaco because they're afraid of COVID. They had their seasons planned and I commend Jerry for, for scheduling these meets and, and getting them in incredible shape. But it's just, if it was me and I was in incredible shape, I would think, Oh my God, there's having this meet in Monaco. Let's go see. Why not? What do we have to lose? Maybe it's going to hurt their psyche to realize, you know what? I can't compete with the world's best. Uh, I can run for third and grab a bronze or, or if the best people all up for the 10,000, maybe I can get a, a bronze medal in the 5,000 or, you know, I, I can hope that the other people all run the 1500 and I can get a medal. But congratulations to Joshua Chepta guy. He's doing something Mo, Mo Farah never did. And to all these other women that are racing, but this, let's let's talk about this women's five thousand. I mean, seriously, it's insane. Do we, John? Do we have any idea what kind of shape these women are in, though? Yeah. So Robert got some inside info here. I reached out to Tim Robery, who former NOP assistant. He's now coaching Safan Hassan and Yomif Kajelcha. I was basically like, "Hey, what's the deal? Like, what's Hassan been up to?" So she's been in Ethiopia for the last few months. It hasn't been ideal. If you guys have been following the situation in Ethiopia, there's been a lot of political unrest and rioting, some, you know, ethnic violence there. It's, it's not great. Um, but 
he said it's taken a little, you know, her training. He's like, it never really returned to normal because of all that. But she then went to the Netherlands for a little bit and then to St. Moritz. And now she's arriving in Monaco today, which is Wednesday. And he told me he thinks some of the athletes in the field could be ready to set personal bests, but he's not sure about anyone's going to be able to take, willing to take the lead. This is the problem we've seen in so many men's diamond leagues is once the pacer drops out. And so he said, as for Safan, we expect her first race of the year to be more tactical than anything as everyone tests out their fitness. I wouldn't be surprised if this is one of those races where the pace drops off the second the pacer steps off the track. We would love to start going off the times, but I think we're a few weeks away from anything like that. Well, that's good. It's going to be warm. The women run a little bit longer, so the, the heat will impact them more than the men's race. So get one under your belt. But, I mean, I mean, how many times in history have you had three women with PRs of 14-18, 14-22, and 14-23 line up against each other? And it, I, I think actually, I actually think since, since Houlihan has been in shape, it would do her well confidence-wise to show up, smoke these women, blow them away, and end her season on a high note. Instead, what does she do? She goes and ends her season blowing up an 800 last week in 203, John. She went out in 57. Was it 203 or 20? What was this time there? I think she it was only 201. Uh, uh, 201. I give her credit for going out in 57 and going for the big PR, and then she blows up. But I like the conspiracy theories. I was wondering, do you think Jerry Shoemaker did this on purpose? Knew that she wouldn't put up a good time, wanted her to go out, wanted her to go to blow up, to get to try to move her off the 1500 and try to think, you know what? My speed's not that great. I didn't medal in the 1500. I should move to the 5000. No, that's insane. Shelby loves the 800. She's she likes getting a chance to run it. She definitely wanted to run under two minutes in that race. So that was, I'm sure Shelby was all for it. Also, one woman you didn't mention, Robert, Beatrice Chepkoech, the steeplechase world record holder and world champion, also in this woman's 5000. And then there's Shannon Roberies coming over to run it. Jessica Hull, uh, Coco Klosterhalfen, who actually, Coco's no longer on the start list anymore. She was scheduled to run it. But yeah, to, it's going to be an amazing race. John, thank you for pointing out some other people. And the Tim Roberry thing is pretty amazing. That guy used to be like defending Alberto Salazar on our boards. He was like an intern guy. And now he's coaching like Safan Hassan <laughs> and Yomif Kajelcha. And they haven't raced this year, so that's pretty interesting. He's, I guess he's been coaching them from afar. A couple things also about Ethiopia, John. You didn't mention two big things. One, you said the work term riot. I think riot now is not allowed. You say mostly peaceful protest. I think that's the term people prefer. But what if there's violence? There has been violence. I don't think I can call it a mostly. Oh, I guess you're making a joke there. I don't want to demean the situation in Ethiopia because it is serious. But I, I think that you, you know, I don't think anyone would disagree that there's riots. Yeah, there have been a few riots. Agreed. Maybe a bad joke because th there has been, you know, d deaths in e Ethiopia and most of the stuff going on in the United States has mostly been more property crime. But there have been deaths here, like cops were killed, sort of defending some of the protests, that sort of stuff. So bad situation all along. Never make political jokes on a running show, but I already did. But what about Letza Bennett G'day? She crushed everybody last year. Well, not Hassan. In the 15K world record, like, what did she run? Her She ran 44.20 for 15K last year. Yeah, it was like 29.12 10K split, right? Well, she ran faster than the fastest 10K ever on the track for, like, a downhill segment of that course. Yeah, I mean, that's maybe the greatest female run under the marathon ever. 15.07 and then 29.13. 
I mean, what's the knock on her? She's not a 5K runner, and I guess she's been in Ethiopia as well as too, so maybe her training's not going as well? I don't think there's a knock on her. We don't, I mean, Tim was sort of guessing, I think, on the other women's fitness, but like, G'day, you know, she's she's a few years younger than Hassan. I think there's certainly a world where she becomes the next one and she just takes over. Yeah, if you guys don't know what World's referring to, we talked about it on the podcast a few weeks ago. She ran a 15K after Worlds, getting silver in the world. She ran 44.20. We've converted this. John said it might be the greatest run except for the marathon in women's history. No, the greatest run, period. It converts to a 211.51 marathon. So, you know, it'll be fascinating to see what she can do in this race as well. And then there's going to be some great midday action as well. Let's move to the men's 800. They've got... Donovan Brazier, but not just him. He's the world champion and the world leader. We have the top four in the world from last year's Worlds all in this race. So should be amazing, right? Yeah, well, we don't, I mean, we don't really know what kind of shape the other medalists, which were Ramel Tuco, Focus and Rotich, and then Bryce Hopple, who, remember, was fourth last year at Worlds. None of these guys have really been racing. We know that Brazier has been racing and is fit. So, and I, Brazier, he did a media call earlier today and they asked, someone asked him about his 143, what his thoughts were. He was like, yeah, I was kind of, I was kind of disappointed by that. You know, I, I kind of forgot how to run the 800. I forgot how much it hurt. Like he seemed like he'll be a lot better prepared this next time out. So he didn't say he wanted to, he didn't put any time goals or anything out there for Friday, but he's going to be ready to rock, rock and roll. And I, th- I mean, does, do we expect anything other than a, a, a brazier victory against this field robert or weldon yeah when i was looking at the field just because the other guys haven't raced and this is the 800 i'm like this is donovan brazier sort of racing the clock tuka's in the field rotich hopple but just i feel like it's very hard your first 800 to go out and race very well but i guess they could be time trialing and you know hopple could be running hard and i don't know where he's been kansas or something i just i think the question here is how fast does donovan brazier run does he really go for it? Does he can he target the American record? I think it's he's shown his talent, his fitness this year is pretty tremendous. And we were speculating in his first eight hundred that one forty three whether he could get the American record. So you'd like to think on the big stage of Monaco with fans a couple weeks later, this is a legitimate American record attempt, and it's going to be live on NBCSN. So it'll be great. I mean, well, live on Olympic Channel. It depends about the pacing, though. You, you to run, you know, one forty one or one forty two. You need to be going out in like forty around forty nine seconds, low forty nine seconds. Will will that be the pace? And will he be able? To, I mean, if it is, I think he could run one forty one or one forty two. We've got no excuses unless they don't know how to use the wave light technology. John, I don't have any problem with him winning this field race. The question we remember a few weeks ago: Will he get the American record? I was definitely going to say yes before that last race. I'm still going to say yes. Ah. That's only a B though, right, Robert? American record B, world record no, A. No, like talk of the world sub 140 record. A plus. What's the grades here? Get back to me on the world record. I think people are taking this a little bit too far before they start comparing him to the great David Rudisha. You were the one who said he needed to break the world record to get an A in Monaco. That was you on this podcast. Someone show me the tape. I don't remember saying that. When you when you get older, you do have uh, memory loss. John, you're half British, or do you consider yourself British? Is that like insulting to say you're half British? But we also have Kyle Langford in this race. I was looking him up. I mean, his PR is 144.97. So I'm like, at first I thought, like, how did this guy get in the field? Then I'm like, wait a minute. 
didn't he get fourth at Worlds? He got fourth in the 2017 Worlds. So, you know, I mean, it's pretty amazing. I mean, I guess Hopple's PR is only 144.25. So very quality field here. Also got Mar- Marco Arop. Didn't he make Worlds final last year from Canada? Yep. A couple of Australians, Joe Dang, Peter Bull. So should be a good one. Wonder what- Let's go to the women's thousand, Robert. Another. This is a, this isn't a. This is. I think it's better than the men's eight hundred. If you look at the women in this field, Faith can't be gone. The Olympic champion at fifteen hundred meters, Laura Muir. She's a stud. Halima Nakai of Uganda, the world champion in the eight hundred. Gemma Riki, the new British star, and Raven Rogers, the silver medalist in the eight hundred. And they're all racing over a thousand meters, which I think is just a great overlap distance you know it's a little long for rogers maybe but it's a great distance for muir it's a great distance for Riki and kip be gone she's stepping down but uh, I- i'm super excited about this one who you guys got this is great john because this is what the sports needs first of all because people are desperate for a race they're all showing up and then they put them in i think for the first big may event put them in an odd distance so you don't you know you don't worry about your pr you don't worry like oh i only ran this time and we get, uh, you know, some more 800 runners. We get some more 1,500-meter runners. Who do I predict? Let's see here. I mean, yeah, I just don't think you get a race. You don't normally get a race like this in in a normal year. If you had 1,000 on the schedule, it's usually someone, some stud making a record attempt while ever, there's a bunch of spares behind them. And, you know, these women would normally be spare up if they'd either run an 800 here and then, or they'd wait until an 800 at the next Diamond League meet. The 800 specialists wouldn't necessarily move up to a 15 so it's a great opportunity rika did did beat laura muir the other day in 800 but i, I think muir was in a bad position i would normally go with i mean i might go with a kipye gun or, or one of the ugandans if, if, if i knew they were in great shape but i know that muir's in good shape so i'm gonna go with muir but it'll be interesting to see what raven rogers does in her debut right for yeah, yeah she's been she's paced a couple races did she finish any of them out in oregon i don't think she did yeah, this is Roger's debut. She's now in Pete Julian's group, so I think this will be huge. Mimo, reminder alert, she was the silver medalist at Worlds last year. What does she do now that she's sort of moved over to the NLP? And one thing we've seen in the past is pretty much when you move to the NLP, you get a lot faster. Zombie NOP, well done. NOP no longer exists, please. Another shout-out, Alberto Salazar. You're always welcome on the podcast. We can branch off to our own podcast, whatever you want. But... Yeah, how good the Ugandan 800 run, meter runners? How good are they at the 1500? I always in the thousands generally tend to pick the 1500 meter runners. So I guess that means Kip Yegon or Muir. And since Muir has been racing more, I'll go with her. But it'll be interesting to see. Also, like I, I want to know the schedule. This isn't the only race for the zombie NOP in Europe. So Frazier said, "How many races is he going to do, John?" He's also going to run in Budapest and Stockholm. So three, and then he might, he said he might even stick around longer. He was basically like, he was very candid in his interview saying that he's like, look, the US has sucked doing coronavirus. Um, I feel safer in Europe than I would over here. I'm probably going to stick around if I can. And he, he said they've connected through London and Craig Engels was wearing like a USA flag shirt or something. And Brazier was like, dude, you're an idiot for wearing that. Like they're going to turn us away because you know, we're Americans and didn't happen, but I, I found that amusing. So yeah, Brescia is going to be in Europe for a little while. So maybe my plans to have a rogue U S championships, you know, I said who would show up. I might have to host them in Europe and John and Brescia will be the only person, but maybe we'll get like an American record or something out of it. 
but I, it's just great to see sort of real racing. I'm really even almost as excited to have fans that they think this can be done safely. 5,000 fans isn't, you know, capacity, but outdoor sporting events. And, you know, there's been an actual, some uptick in restrictions put in Nice, which is just next door to Monaco. So they're thinking, hey, we can hold this. We take precautions. This can be done safely. And so hopefully this is something the rest of the world can emulate soon. As for the outcome of that race, I'll go with uh, Weldon's pick. I think Muir is a good pick as well because, like she said, she's been racing. I think that's a good distance for her. There's one, uh, I mean, that we have a men's steeple as well, which is ta- is good. It's got Lometra Goma. It's got Sufiane Albacali, who was silver and bronze at Worlds last year, but lost Conceslas Comprudo, who tested positive for coronavirus. And he was he said he wanted to make a world record attempt. So that's a bummer not to have him in the field. But we do have a men's 1500 as always in Monaco, as is tradition. Timothy Chariot's the headliner there. We've got Craig Engels. We've got Jakob Ingebrigtsen. We've got Yomif Kajelcha, for some reason, is in this race. Uh, Jake Whiteman, Marcin Lewandowski, who was medaled at Worlds last year. So quite a lot of talent, but I think Chariot, I mean, it's going to be interesting. How does Chariot compare to Ingebrigtsen? How has his training been? You know, Ingebrigtsen's already run fast this year. Can Chariot also run fast? Let me interrupt here with another rant. While you guys are talking about some random old races you're talking about, but I get, well, yes, I play it both ways in COVID Weldon. When I'm doing my own personal family, I don't need, I'm not a professional runner and I'm not making a lot of money, but what? Donovan Brazier's ripping our own country now for, for the COVID response. Does he know where he lives? He really feels safer in France than, than Oregon. Oregon's had 372 COVID deaths for the population of 4 million. France has 30,000 COVID deaths with a population of, of 60 million. It would be like you would need 5,000, more than 5,000 COVID deaths in, in, in Oregon to have the same per capita as France. So Oregon has done it 10, one tenth, has 10% of the COVID deaths of, per capita of France. I mean, even now, probably the rate's probably lower in Oregon. He said it's safer in Europe than America as a whole. He wasn't oh, well, saying he's not Oregon. living in New York City. Yeah, I I know. But Robert, he would have to travel somewhere else in America to race, and that's the problem with the US. It's very big and very diverse. Or not a problem. It's actually a strength of the United States, but for certain things it can be a problem. Well, well then any thoughts on that fifteen hundred that I introduced while Robert was doing his research to rebut your our points? His rant? Uh, yeah. It's just so sort of weird. It's like, you know, this is like the Doha opener, but it's in Monaco in August. You're not really sure what shape people are in. You know, when did the Ingerbritsum's last race? Because they were racing, I guess, June 30th. There was a race that looks like Jacob ran a 146, 1500. Um, are they going to even, like, are they in shape to target 330? Because usually in Monaco, it's like super fast. So that'd be one thing. You know, Jakob's run 330.16. Phillips PB is somewhere right around there, I believe. 330.01. Wow, even faster. I was like, I knew neither one had broken 330, but crazy. And Chariot's always ready to go, it seems like. So do you think in the first race they could target 330? It's just going to be like a 333 race, and I don't care. I, I think anything's possible. I mean, we've seen in Doha in the last few, you know, when they run a 1500 in Doha, we've seen t- times right around 330. So I wouldn't be surprised with that. Jakob ran really well. That 2K he ran at the uh, Impossible Games was a European record. I think it was like, you know, under under five minutes. That was pretty, pretty far. What, 450 maybe? So 
I think they could go fast, but that's part of the beauty. We don't know, right? It's good. That's why we watch. I think they're going to go sub 330. Winning time, sub 330. That, that's a great race. Look at that. Both Ingebrigtsen's, Ingles, Kajelcha. My God. This is going to be exciting, folks. You've got to watch this race on Friday. And founding club, supporters, founding members of the supporters club, you won't have to wait hours for our post-race recap. You can join and watch the live video show right after. So that is going to be exciting. But guys there's, and gals, there's something, a few other things I wanted to talk about before we get to the Dave Smith interview. And there's other, also not even distance fans, Carson Wilhelms in the 400 hurdles, Grant Holloway in the 110 hurdles, DuPontis versus Kendricks. I mean, this meet is insane. Noah Lyles in the 200. Yeah, God. it's going to be special. Josephus Lyles as well in the 200. That guy's got it great, right? Last week, guys, we were talking about how good Josh Kerr was and how underrated he is. And then what did he do? He almost beat Nigel Amos in the 800. It was a tactical 800, 149.23 to 149.29. Very impressive. That was at the big friendly four. Now, one thing that I always – this is my belief about the 800 as a former coach is people think sometimes that, John, that a tactical 800 benefits – like a tactical 800 would benefit the speed guy, the more 800 guy than the 1500 guy. I totally disagree. I th- cause they're faster. I think a tactical 800 benefits a miler because you know, it's just like who, who can, who has the most left. So anyways, I, I think I, I don't follow you there. Is it because you're saying it's more like a 1500 and that they're kicking very, very hard at the end. Whereas in an 800, you're sort of slowing down the last 200 or well i just think that it, it, it ends up being like your speed doesn't people's like oh it's, it's about ends up being who's the fastest and i'm like no it's not about who's the fastest it's about who has who's the least tired and that's going to be more the 1500 meter guy if they go out really fast in the first you know if they run a 50 second first lap that's going to wipe out a 1500 meter guy he's not going to be used to that but when they go out slow it's just about oh, okay Who's the least amount of tired? I'm going to slam it home. And yes, the four they the more 800 meter runner may have a better 400 meter personal best, but they're going to be tired because they're not you know it's just their endurance isn't as good. So I th- I always found when I was coaching that the more tactical races actually benefit the 1500 meter runners running 800 than it does the pure speed guys, which I think is counterintuitive to a lot of people. If you if you want an explanation for that, someone just email me Robert at Let's Run. Or as always, you can call the show, 844-538-7786, 844-LET'S-RUN. That was just a side point that I wanted to get out there. Moving on, to earlier when I ranted about the Barrowman Track Club not going to Europe, one member of the Barrowman Track Club did go to Europe, Mark Scott. So apparently he wasn't quite afraid to get on a plane. He ran a road 5K in Europe, ran 13.20. So just pointing that out that not everyone British record British record on the roads there Robert yeah and if you're like a Shelby fan or her parents or Shelby herself or coach or Jerry or Pascal or anyone I really do love you guys I just wish that you would race a little bit more often it's nothing personal friend of the podcast Shelby Houlihan two-time podcast guest I think in the last year plus so Robert please do not knock Shelby I mean, she ran a 14.23 during COVID and was racing every 10 days, giving us something. That's why I'm not inclined to <laughs> rip her because that was something. You know. That's why I didn't want to do it. I wanted Walton. Walton, have you checked your voicemail yet? Check your iPhone voicemail. A podcast listener called and said he left you a message. And I, I think it would be great audio. If he, if the voicemail was anything, look from anything as good as what they ranted to me on the phone, it would have been amazing. We could just replace my rant with their rant. Um, other news that I found interesting when I was perusing my this week's edition of Race Results Weekly. OMG, I just found this audio. 
this will have to be bleeped out, but it's definitely worth a listen. Should I try to bleep it live while we <laughs> hit play here? No, let's let's handle that in post. Just play the play the audio. Well then, I'm just calling to bitch about the Bowerman not racing in Europe at all, and how hard that must be for Houlihan and Ahmed, particularly, to be in this kind of shape and not be racing in Europe. I don't get it, and I'm hoping you guys are writing editorial just reaming that club in Schumacher. Why are they not racing in Europe? Unbelievable that Nike's letting them get away with it. I'm going to leave the same message for your bro. See you, man. Wow. That's now you guys see Weldon found it. Now you see why I got so riled up. I mean, I've got fans calling me up as I'm driving to work, demanding that I give a rant, and I did get riled up. And I hope I did a good rant. I should have just played that voicemail though if I'd actually had access to it instead of. Now I'm going to take the heat, and he's going to take the heat for criticizing the thing. But moving on, as I was perusing my copy of Race Results Weekly today, I or on Monday, I noticed that a European record fell. Josh Hermans, Kinesi Bekele's agent, had held one of the longest-standing, if not the longest-standing European records, the one-hour run. Son- Norway's Sandre Mullen, the 205 marathoner, ran 21,131 meters, actually the number two mark in history. He's only 154 meters off of Haile Gabriel's world record. He has the new record. He went through half marathon in 59.54. So if you're wondering, like, why didn't he just run 150 50 more meters to beat the world record. Well, he's running pretty damn fast. So, Robert, why would anyone ru- wonder that? Isn't that's the same as asking someone why didn't you run faster in a race? It's because it's harder to run faster. I don't think it changes just because you're trying to run for distance instead of time. So, anyways, I, I thought this was interesting. And now, those of you, we, we John gave Mo Fair a little bit of grief for not going for fast times. I think it's next month. Mo Fair is actually going to be going. For Holly Gabriel Celeste's world record in the one hour run. Um, and I think that equates to like 59.26 for the half marathon. So that's going to be coming up at one of these later European meets. Brussels, September 4th. Again, it's kind of like a, it's not a series, it's not the fight, it's not a biggie, big boy world record though. Well, no, but 59.26 isn't screwing around. And, um, you know, if the weather's good enough for that, you think it would be good enough for another 5,000-meter world record attempt. So check the guy's agent. If you're listening, don't give up after this race. It's the weather. Go to Brussels, and you can do it there. Ooh, speaking of such, speaking of such, Conceslas Capruto was supposed to race in Monaco, and the meet ends with a steeplechase. And he said, look, I wanted to get the world record. This is from the greatest championship steepler ever, argue, first or second best. Oh, that's ever. an insult to Ezekiel. Campbell. Okay, second best. the Maybe the best steepler ever, but he's never broken eight minutes, which is so unbelievable. So maybe I shouldn't say he's the best steepler ever. But I think before he left Europe, right, he tested positive for COVID. And he's like, what? Like, I'm in world record shape. I feel great. And he says, somebody please put on a steeple for me. So maybe the one of these remaining meets can put on a steeple and he can go over and go at it. We can have an, another 5k record attempt. <sighs> maybe, maybe we'll have, what are these meets called? The big friendly, the big friendly seven. We'll fly them all to Oregon and they can race. Okay. But Robert, 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 you forgot to mention about Sandre Moen. No, this mark was DQ'd. 
It didn't count. Has it been DQ'd? That's what I was going to get to. He was wearing the Vaporfly 4% shoes, which are definitely going to be banned from the track starting in December, but some are debating whether you can still wear them now. But then I think the, the, I read somewhere that the, the grace period only applies for field events and not for running events. So has he been DQ'd? All right, well, he, here is the the situation as I understand it. And I, I've also heard, I think Moen was like trying to get a TUE for his shoes or he was trying to figure out if he can use these shoes or not. I, I do think they were kind of worried here. But the situation is, I believe he raced in shoes that are greater than the limit, which was instituted of 25 millimeters for any long distance track spike. Uh, World Athletics just announced this in July, but it was before the race they announced this. But it's not a track spike. It What? It's a track spike. This is a track flat. Uh, I thought he ran... Yeah, they're saying f- it's anything you're running in a long-distance track race. But they had in the rules that there is a grace period until December 1st. And so I, I saw this. I'm like, well, that's fine. Like they, that's This is before December 1st. That'll be all right. But then... Jakob Larson, who's the guy who put on the great world champion, world cross country champs last year, he now works for World Athletics. He said this transition period only applies for field event shoes, which makes no sense to me because when I read over the rules, I was like, there's nothing in here to indicate it only applies to field events. But as I understand it, I think because of this, this record probably will not be ratified as a world record. That's the situation as I understand it. Well, it won't be ratified as a world record because it wasn't a world record. Oh, no, okay. You're, European you're, record. Yeah. Okay, a couple things. One, Jakob Larson works for World Athletics now, John? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yes, yes, yes. He's a podcast listener. That guy put on one of the greatest events I've been to. The World Cross Country Championships, what was that, two years ago in Denmark? was unbelievable. And a guy who thinks like that can put on cool events like that should be working with World Athletics. That is a great hire. Um, that's really good news to hear. So now we're at a point where you can wear a shoe in a marathon, but you can't wear the same shoe in the track. That's absurd. No, th- that's what I'm talking about. We didn't get into the shoe stuff enough at week ago. I was thinking about myself. This is absurd. Why is it either ban them or allow them? Don't allow them. On I was saying it was a good thing a few weeks ago because the colleges wouldn't have to buy their 10K runners, these $300 shoes. But it doesn't make any sense for the whole sport. I'm fine with letting amateurs run them, but not the pros. Like I, these rules make no sense. That they were a little bit afraid to annoy Nike, but I don't know. While we're at it, so Moan's mark may or may not be DQ'd. I was going to give a shout out though to some meat organizers in Goldberg, Sweden. They did DQ somebody. There was a middle distance race last Thursday. And it was originally won by a woman running 1636. I guess it was a 5,000. And they looked at her shoes and they said, sorry, honey, you're out of here. So the second placer who ran 18 minutes was vaulted, was anointed the winner. You're, wait, wait, you're, you're rewarding? You think this is a good thing that a woman who ran 1636, she won the race by 90 seconds, clearly was the best athlete. I don't think you would think they, these shoes give her a 90 second advantage in a 5k you really think this is and this is like 1636 this is not some mind-blowing winning time you think this is a good thing for the sport this woman was dq'd robert so john yes i want the rules enforced we have rules enforce them start enforcing them now and we won't have these problems and i don't care so john if a high schooler dopes you know it's fine if alan webb doped when he was in high school he was fine but doping's different than shoes where but Wait a second. The bigger issue is how the hell did both of you guys know about some 1636 5K or getting DQ'd? 
Oh, I just learned about it now when Robert told me. Now I looked at the show notes for the results. Robert, how did you know this? David Monty of Race Results Weekly. If you pay hundreds, I, I pay for the subscription every year and I love to read it every week. It helps me greatly and learn some sense. I guess there's no races going on. So David's like pouring over. Like I don't know how David found out about it. I think it's interesting. So the rules apply to the little people, but not the big people. That's what we're learning here, folks. Well, also, also, I want to look at another result. This meet, this is the most amazing meet. The Swedish Interclub Finals. The 1500 meters, I was looking at the results. So I put together some start lists for Monaco and I noticed Callie Berglund, who's a, you know, a, a very good Swedish runner. He's running the 1500. His PR is like 336 or something like that. And he had a season best listed of 440. And I'm like, 440 for a 1500? That can't be right. So I looked at his Tillis Depage page. It said 440. And now Robert shows Robert has the results from this race. He actually ran 440 for 1500 meters. His last lap was in 49.6. The second place was 441, then 442 for third. I was just I couldn't believe this guy. That is going to be the slowest 5 1500 by like a 15 a guy in his prime who's like in his 330. He ran over a minute slower than his PR. It's amazing. Yeah, we need to see video of this race. If anyone has video, please send it to us. I actually was going to John Kellogg went to the doctor's office. He's not in the office right now. I wanted to ask him on air this question, John, because I noticed this great result myself. If you take like a 335 guy and have them jog like 350 for the first 1,100 meters, what would they run their last lap in? He would be able to nail that. John's really good at that type of stuff. So This is like a HEPs 1500 final from the mid-2000s. Do we need our Donald Trump segment of the week? John, uh, I, I don't, I don't see how that's necessary. You mentioned the Heps and Ivy League, and Trump was talking about, you know, how he didn't go to a football school. He went to an Ivy League school. You know, they didn't have football, and I agreed. I was like, yeah, I went to an Ivy League school. I got what he was saying, and Twitter tore him apart, pointing out that Penn has a football team. As a football fan yourself, John, break the debate. If we're picking stupid things that Trump has said. I mean, there's probably he's probably said three stupid things since we've been on this podcast. So I, I mean, it's just it's low hanging fruit. There, there are many. He has much bigger failings than forgetting that Penn has a football team. And if Trump had come out, John, and advocated for canceling the college football season, do you think the Pac-10 and Big Twelve would have been for the football season? No, I, I that you're making this a political thing when it's not. I think the, I think money is a big, they want, look, the conferences want the money. They wanted to have a football season. You know, I don't think they canceled it because just to spite Donald Trump, that's ludicrous. Well, it was interesting because I know Robert listens to Clay Travis on Fox sports radio. And he was talking about football and staying abreast. And I'm like, when is that guy on for the first time ever? I was walking my dogs and I was like, Oh, he's on right now. I hit play. And Donald Trump was on the Clay Travis radio show. And I started listening. And that was one thing he said. He's like, oh, if you were against football, would people be for it? I'm like, damn it. He really should come out against football. I don't want my football gone. But we we still may have some college football. Well, anything else, guys? Robert, I know Robert really wants to watch the Atalanta versus PSG Champions League game. The second he can still catch the second half. So anything else to add before we go to Dave Smith? Yeah, my my French neighbor who will be accompanying you to Monaco, he wants me to come over to watch it. Well, shout out to Sarah Hall. She keeps continues to amaze. She ran a sixty eight minute half marathon. To do that, to be PRing in your late thirties as a mother of four is very impressive. So, shout out to her. 
And we should celebrate, guys. Let's take a moment. Remember last week, we were worried there would be no London and no NCAs. And here we are a week later. London is on. Bikile versus Kipchoge will be happening. If you missed it, Jonathan Galt has talked to Josh Hermans about that. So check that out on the webpage, letsrun.com. And we're going to have more on NCAA Cross Country, which may be at a $25 million facility at Oklahoma State. Dave Smith will be talking about that right next. And don't forget, letsrun.com slash subscribe for founding club members. And the fake Galen Rupp, if you call back in, you will get a free year membership. Come on, man. We need some good audio, please. All right. Here he is, three-time NCAA cross-country championship coach, Dave Smith. Okay, and now I'm happy to be joined by Dave Smith. He's the head coach at Oklahoma State. His men have won three national cross-country championships. And, you know, we've seen a lot of conferences this week have said they're postponing, they're canceling, Pac-12 and Big Ten among them. Oklahoma State's in the Big 12. They have not canceled yet. They've seemed like they want to try to play football. And in fact, this morning, Wednesday morning, you guys just had your first practice of the 2020 cross-country season. So are you treating this as if this is the first of many or this is the first of maybe a week and then it's over? How are you feeling right now? Full steam ahead, baby. We're going. Um, yeah, I think I, I'm excited about the kind of the attitude our conference has taken and um they definitely don't want to rush to to cancel anything as long as we can keep the student athletes safe. Um, I think just watching what we do around our athletic department, I don't think there's a safer place you can be as a college student on a college campus than in an athletic department right now. I, I, I really believe that we're, we're testing vigorously. Um, we are isolating. People aren't, we aren't using our weight room. We're not using our locker room. We're not using our training room. I've told the guys, hey, from now on, just bring your stuff, sit it outside along the fence and we'll, uh, you know, warm up and do all our stretching stuff on our own. You know, we're not going into the training room. We're, we're just going to stay, you know, as safe as possible. And watching what football is doing, um, they have, again, like I said, tested rigorously. They're, they're isolating people who test positive. Primary contacts are being isolated. And I think, you know, from my personal opinion, having that nugget for a student athlete of I've got a competition, I've got a team counting on me, I cannot get sick, I cannot get my teammates sick, I've got to be extra careful, that motivation – sorry – is better than um, you know that that carrot is better than is better than any, anything we can do. If we say, "Hey, thanks for being on campus. See you next August," I'm afraid of what might happen because all of a sudden that uh, possibility to compete or to you know be with your teammates that incentive goes away. Boy, it might not look so bad to go to the bar or to a party or to hang out in big groups. You know what I mean? So I think um, being in season is probably the safest place a, a student athlete can be. So you seem pretty firm that you want a cross-country season to happen. Yeah, I want a cross-country season. I want an NCAA championship. I want, um, you know, it's going to be different, no doubt about it. We've got to make some changes. We can't do things the way we, we would normally do. It's going to be a, a different year. And how we get to the national championships and what it looks like once we get there might be different. But I would still like to see a national championship. One thing Jonathan left out, Dave, was NCAAs are supposed to be at Oklahoma State. You guys are the host. Yeah. So – I've sort of been following the Pac-12 and the Big Ten in terms of football. Have they canceled all sports or just yeah. football at this point? They've they've suspended all sports to my the best of my understanding. So if we do have an NCAAs, I mean, it's going to look drastically. I mean, I mean, the Big Ten and the Pac-12 are two of the stronger conferences. I mean, have yeah. you looked? At, yeah. Some people some people might think, oh, you want to go on just because now you're going to be one of the favorites, but and you're hosting, but. 
I would think kind of the opposite that you're disappointed because you guys have spent what millions of dollars on this cross country course. Yeah. I've heard some people say it might be the best cross country course in the world. And yet, even if you do host the championships, not everyone's going to be there to enjoy it. Yeah. You know, I, a lot of things, I think, first of all, um, I want to run because all these athletes haven't, they haven't done anything competitive since March. And I think just watching the effect of, uh, that it's had on some of our athletes of just kind of being kind of out of sync and not knowing what the future is and being uncertain and not doing what they love to do, not being able to come and practice in the spring or compete. I don't, I think it's really hard on, on some of these student athletes. I think they, they miss it. It's a big part of their identity and their personality. I think they want to be involved in it. So I worry if, if we miss another three or four months of practice and competition, how many athletes, student athletes we might lose who start to start to feel like, you know what, you know, I've only got a year left anyway. I don't know. You know, I, I, I worry about what it does to their experience. So I would like them the opportunity to compete. Um, I would hope we could have as many teams as possible still um, still participating. And, you know, it, like you said, it sounds unlikely that the Big Ten or the Pac-12 teams will be involved. Um, it sounds unlikely that they would walk back in any way their decision for any of their sports. Um, I think it would be great if they did, but probably unlikely. Well, I think the, the concern here, though, you know, you want to have a championship, but FlowTrack has sort of been tracking the number of conferences have said they're not going to have a sport. And the NCAA said, you know, a few months ago, I think, if there are less than 50% of schools that sponsor this sport competing in the sport, there will not be an NCAA championship. And I think at this point, we're only about one week, one conference away from that reaching that well, threshold. Well, what the so, Coaches I mean, Association told us today is that we are at currently 42% of teams on the men not not participating now. So we're at about 58%. Um, and what is that? That's going to leave you at about 30 schools. We're about 30 schools to the good, right? We got we got to keep – we can't lose more than 30 from this point forward. Yeah. And, I mean, do you – I look at that, I just think it's kind of inevitable. We're going to lose that number. It's not going to happen. But are you, are you still optimistic well, that it could well, happen? I don't know – Again, that I wasn't sure, and I didn't look at it closely enough because I was tired of reevaluating my situation every three days. But you know, August twenty first was kind of a, a a deadline period for that. And I didn't know if it meant if we get to August twenty first with fifty percent, it's a go. Because here's again my my fear about eligibility. Let's say we get there with fifty two percent, we start, and in October we've run our team, and then a school decides to drop, a conference drops. And now we're at 48% and they say no championship. Well, we've got to protect those athletes that, you know, they were running for that championship. And I don't want them to say, well, they don't have an NCAA championship, but go ahead and finish out your season, your conference season. No, these, you know, cross country athletes, they're running for the national championships, most of them. I think at our university, certainly that's what we're thinking. And a, a season without a championship, um, NCAA or otherwise, doesn't feel like a season to, to most of these athletes. So you mentioned you had practice this morning, though. Like, what – and, how, you know, some of the differences. Like, are you guys – do you have your full team there? How often have you been tested? Is there a requirement? Like, how often – you know, that sort of thing. We have our full team here. They've all been tested twice. Um, in our cross-country, men and women, we had no positives and no antibodies. So we're doing antibody testing and, um, and you know, virus testing. And we had no positives what, on, on either men or women. Um you know, I'm sure that will change. We are going to continue testing, um, kind of, they call it surveillance testing, where a group of people will be tested every Monday, not necessarily your entire team every Monday, but a, a representative portion of them. 
And um, what we're doing, I, I really want to reduce the effect of the, the, the thing that seems to be have that the football team has learned who started much earlier in this is the contact tracing is what gets you. So if your roommate tests positive, well, now you're in contact tracing for two weeks, you're out, you know, and then once you get through two weeks, you test negative, you can come back in. And so we are trying to really limit our contact tracing. So what we did today is I think we had five or six groups of men running, running um, the same temple run. And they were separated by half an hour. One group comes in, they had to head out and warm up. They come back and start. The next group comes in, they head out. And so we had in our first two groups, I told them, hey, we're going to run. We're going to start. We're going to do a four-mile temple run the track just to see where we are. We're going to start at 78, 79 per lap. And then you can gradually work down and see where you end up. And the first group, um, which was half of my top guys, they went, I think, 24, 24. Or sorry, 20, 24. And then the second group comes in without any knowledge of what that group did, and they run 2025. So I thought that was really interesting that under the same rules, hey, I don't care what your pace is, start here, we'll kind of gradually work it down to whatever it is it is, let's just see where we are. That we had, you know, two groups that were really would have been one group in a normal year, but we broke them up by who they live with, what their abilities are, what their current fitness is. And then we had, you know, behind them two or three more groups that came in. So we're training, I said, hey, this is your training pod. This pod is three people, three guys who happen to live individually in town on their own. You three will train together. Then I've got four guys that live together in a combination with each other, one way or the other. I said, you guys will be a pod together. Do all your runs together. Do all your, we'll do all your training together. Now, the bad thing is if one of them tests positive, they're all going to be out for two weeks. But at least I stopped the crossover. And I've kind of got almost um, half of my A team in one group and half of my A team in another group. So I hopefully will never be without the entire group. Yeah. And that's the plan for the, the yep. whole season is just to keep it yep. into those small yep. pods. Yeah. Um, what about pre-nats? Are you guys still planning on hosting that? What's What has been the feedback from schools on that? Yeah, you know, it's it's been, it been a, a very dynamic conversation the entire summer with schools calling and saying, hey, I can't come to this meeting because I come to that one. Will you let us in? Will you let us out of this contract? Not just say, hey, you know, whatever you can do, we'll let everybody in. The difficulty we're having now is that some conferences have gone to, we can compete only against our conference, or we can compete only against other Power Five schools, because we know that the testing protocols at the other Power Five schools are very similar, and we can be feel confident that the athletes, our athletes are competing against, are also rigorous, rigorously tested. So that's going to present a little issue. Um, I, I've got a couple ideas on how I might fix that so we can make everybody feel comfortable. Um, you know, you can get USATF certification for races. And part of that is that all participants have to have two negative tests within the last week before the competition. Provide the proof of that to a medical professional who's overseeing the meet. So we could make all of our meets, we could sanction them through USATF. And then everybody who comes has to be, and it's not me saying you can't come. It's you can come as long as you can prove all your athletes have these negatives. So I don't know how I'm going to do it. I don't want to exclude, there's so few meets left and travel is going to be difficult for everybody. So if we've got local schools who aren't power five, I don't want to hold them out. But then if I don't, then any SEC schools that want to come in here can't because they, they're not being allowed to run against the non-power five schools. And so I've talked to some of those institutions in the SEC and said, hey, would your, do you think you could make it work if we had this? USATF sanctioned and every participant had two negative tests in the seven days prior to the competition. 
and they don't know. No one knows the answer to this, but it's something one way we're looking at this. There's a lot of ways we can do it. So we're looking, you know, trying to be creative and find ways where we can accommodate everybody and um, keep everybody happy and competing. Earlier this summer, Jonathan wrote an article about alternatives to the traditional cross-country format, perhaps running with like a staggered start, kind of like the Tour de France. Yeah. Has there been any talk about changing the way cross the race would be run? I mean, I kind of think yeah. the staggered start actually might be cool. It'd be more like a time trial for yeah. every individual. Any thought to that at the NCAA level? Yeah, I've heard staggered start. I've heard waves. I've heard just reduced number of people, um, you know, the, the time trial thing, like a, like a Tour de France leg, I don't really like as much. The waves I like better. And, and for example, I ran a race in high school in the state of Washington, still run this way, where all the number one men go in one race. All the number two men go in a number race, another race. All number threes go in another. And there's seven races. Um, we don't have the time to run seven 10Ks, but on our course, we could have zero crossover if we said all the number one number one men start and – 30 seconds later, all the number twos go. And 30 seconds later, all the number threes go. We could do it that way. And then you, the, the difficulty would be you would only score then against the people in your wave. And then there's going to be some gamesmanship, right? Like, okay, our number one man is going to be last in the number one race. Let's put him back to number two and put our number two man in number one. He'll still be last. But now our number one gets to run the number twos and score better. Kind of like how tennis does it. You know, tennis, you play your, your number one, my number one against your number one. But people sometimes try to fudge that because they realize my number one's gonna lose no matter what. Put my two there, I'll put my one against their number two, and we'll get a win. So there's those kinds of things. Or you could just do waves and then get the times and rank the times and score it out, you know, put the pull, blend all the times back together and score it as one race. There's different ways you can do it. Um, and I don't know if they'll use those, but if you did it, you could keep those field sizes, you know, in each the the, the amount of people, each athlete comes to into contact to a, to, a, to a minimum. If there's 30 teams and a few individuals, when you got you got 30 individuals you're running around, it, it might not be 30 teams. You know, there might be only 20 teams at Nationals this year. It might be 16. Who knows? They might, you know, the NCAA might reduce that number down. How motivated do you think your athletes, you know, how, how motivated do they seem right now? Like how, how, what was the quality level of the practice? Do you think they've been training hard um, or has it been hard for them to stay focused, you know, well, you know, I'd said to you guys this pre-air, but uh, pre-recording that, um, and it sounds like, yeah, sure. But I really feel like this was the, the best first day of practice we've had in probably close to 10 years. Maybe 2010, we were really raw on that. We got back in 2010. Usually we come in, uh, you know, pretty slowly. And if we do a four-mile tempo run, granted, it's pretty easy for the top guys, but we might run 21 minutes, 21, 20, just see where we are and let the new guys get in and feel confident. Oh, I did a workout with, you know, German Fernandez or whoever. And I, I finished. So we're tend, tend to be pretty conservative, but even doing that, we have guys falling out at that pace when we come back. Cause you know, some guys just don't get it done over the summer. Um, this year we're trying to make our pods and keep the group small and not have everybody together at once. So I sent out a questionnaire, you know, what do you think you would run comfortably and, you know, appropriately for a four mile tempo run. And I gave a bunch of choices. And I thought we'd have a bunch of people say 21 flat. Well, 80% of our team said I, the fastest option I gave was 2020 and 80% of them said 2020. And I was like, well, okay, none of them are going to do that. But then we, like I said, we put them in there. I said, Hey, I want you to start at 79, 80 and then just feel it out to where you are. And they ended up at like they thought they 2025 or 2024 is where that top two groups ended up. So to me, our men's team, 
um, really looks good. And we've got a couple of good newcomers that I think are going to could impact us. We've got a couple of guys that have been here a while that have been dinged up that all of a sudden look like they're going to do well. Um, Isai, Isai Rodriguez, who was kind of limping through the entire year last year and just wasn't training, just trying to race and cross train. And, you know, he was able to fake it through, through the big 12 meet. By the time we got to regionals, he was just on his lips. Um, he looks fantastic. So I think we have a really, really good team. I don't think people will believe me. I remember Dave, when I was talking to you, I think early in the summer, you told me heading into last year, you were telling people, Hey, I think we could win it all. And you ended up having everything go wrong. The team didn't even make it, make it to nationals. Yeah. But, you know, I was wondering about this as a former coach. Is it a lot harder now, assuming, let's say, you know, this was a normal year and all the teams are there. Um, I mean, we, even if we are missing the Big Ten and the Pac-12, though, I was looking at the NCAAs from last year. BYU, Northern Arizona, Iowa State, Tulsa. So four of the top five will be back. I mean, th those teams would all, would all be at the NCAAs, even if the Pac-12 is not there. Yeah. But how much harder do you think it is to win a title now than when you guys were winning, you know, those three – how many years ago was that? Because when I think about it, to me, it just seems like there's so many more teams that are going all in on the distance. I mean, yeah. back then, uh, Syracuse was just getting going. Since then, you've added in Washington. Well, I guess Washington was already kind of doing it. But like UNC, UVA, you know, all these other schools have sort of gone in, on, you know, all in on distance. So do you think it's significantly harder to win, you know, then. Yeah, I, I think this. I think if you look at cross country in the modern era, so since we started qualifying in 72, from 72 to 2009, I believe it was seven teams won all the titles, right? And it was a pretty exclusive club. And one of those teams was Tennessee who won in 72 and then never won again, right? And then all of a sudden, from 2009 until now, you've added Oklahoma State, NAU, BYU, and Syracuse. So like you said, there's some teams that have crashed the party. And I think, like you said, more and more teams are seeing an opportunity to win or feeling like they have a shot to do it, going all in. Um, I think um, the parity is just much, much greater than it used to be. I think all the great, all the best athletes went to the same six or seven schools for 30 years or 40 years. And now, I mean, you've got – great individuals or groups of individuals at probably 30, 40 schools um, in terms of top two or three that can, can be all American in any given year. And I think um, that's what's changed. I think that, uh, you know, if you look at the mountain region of the mountain schools, a lot of those schools that for, for a long time didn't really show up on the national radar. Now, so you got eight or nine, 10 schools that any given year could be contenders for a top 10 spot. Um, and that's one area where it's really kind of exploded. And then, like you said, Syracuse, you know, Oklahoma State, we had won in 54, but not in the modern era until 2009. Um, BYU, as storied as their program is, they'd never won, you know, and now they, they've got one. And, and NAU's got three when they hadn't had any. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's, it's more difficult just because there's there's more the, the the great athletes are spread out and there's a lot more parity in teams. I think also, you know, you might be used to be that John McDonald had a secret and he had a training plan and that he didn't share it. And his thing might have been magic. There's no more secrets, right? What we're all doing, we are all doing. And if I don't know what, what let's say, Arkansas is doing, 
today, I know five minutes from now because it's on Instagram or it's on some, you, you can kind of piece together. And why I, I tell recruits this all the time, you want to talk training, we could, but it's gonna be boring because the top 50 schools and probably the top 100, we're all doing virtually the same thing. And whether you're doing six times 800 or three times a mile or 12 times, whatever, it's, it's the same philosophy. And so there's not a lot of variation in training. And I think the, the level of coaching and training across the board, it's just gotten a lot better than it was. Again, the great coaches were all concentrated in their own little bubbles. There was six, seven, eight, nine coaches that were really good coaches and they were winning all the titles. But that's the information kind of, you know, out there now. If everybody's doing the kind of the same training, what's your recruiting pitch, Dave? It's not about training. That's not the secret. So what is the secret? Lifestyle, culture? Culture, lifestyle, attitude, um, kind of the timing of things. I think um, there's some nuance, obviously, to training. I think the philosophy is the same. I mean, everybody is basically heavily influenced by Jack Daniels these days, right? I think Jack Daniels um, and his, and, you know, and then through Vin Lanana and, and the people who have kind of promoted Jack Daniels, I think um, we're all heavily influenced by Jack Daniels, whether we want to admit it or say it or not. I had one coach one time tell a recruit, tell me, man, I was talking to some other coach that's recruiting me about the workouts you're doing. I told him kind of stuff you do. And he's, oh, he's just, he's just reading Jack Daniels. I said, well, yes, that's what we're all reading. I mean, you know, I talk about paces and what we do and the four mile tempo, right? I think probably people did that in the past, but Jack Daniels made that, made that the staple of, of kind of distance running. We all do some, some coaches, well, I don't do four miles, I do three miles. I don't do four miles, I do five miles. Okay. It's all the same philosophy, you know? So, and same thing with kind of the pacing charts a lot of us use. I think we're, we're, we're heavily influenced by Jack Daniels. Everybody takes it and puts their own personality to it, their own twist to it a little bit. We add things, change things, but we're all influenced by that philosophy. Um, that's what I believe. And I think if you talk to high school coaches now, same thing. We get a lot of really good high school runners. I don't think that the athletes are a lot better than they were 10, 15 years ago. I was telling a kid this the other day. When I when I graduated high school in 88, I ran 409, and I was for a moment at my state meet ranked number one in the country. And the next day, Bob Kennedy ran 406, and I was no longer number one in the country. And I think I finished the, the, the year at number five, okay, at 409. And today, man, that doesn't even get you a walk-on spot to half these teams, right? But back then, I was ranked number five in the country coming out of high school. And I don't think if the athletes are that much better, I think the coaches are better. And I think they're all, like I said, People, the information's out there, people absorbing it, taking it in. They, they add their own twist to it. They add their own personality to it. But the basic philosophy is, is I think, in my opinion, very homogenous. I want to return a little bit to sort of the, the status of the sport. And just there's been a lot of talk that if there's no football this year and there already isn't, you know, in the fall for the Big Ten and Pac-12, there's no football revenue. And that's what these big power five schools, you know, that's the lifeblood of these athletic departments. And I guess I'm wondering, like, let's say we don't have any football in the 2020-21 academic year. Are you worried about the future of cross country as an NCAA sport? Are you worried about the future of cross country at Oklahoma State without that big football TV check from? I'm worried about the future of the NCAA as a as an organization. Yeah, I was going to ask you that as well, because not only do you have, I think there's two things, and I think you're a great person to ask about this, Dave, because, you know, you're out of Oklahoma State, which is a Big 12 school with a lot of money, and particularly also has the, the Boone Pickens money as well. And then, you know, but you all don't have that many sports, 
So you've got the big sports and then mm-hmm. goes country and a few others. But so, so you understand how the big time, you know, money works. But the other thing I was thinking about was not just COVID related, but in the sense of there seems to be all this urge to, to pay football players in particular yeah. basketball players. If we start paying them, you know, the money's got to come from somewhere. And I'm wondering if it's going to come from the Olympic sports. So talk about yeah, that. I think that's, that's, that's a distinct possibility. I think the, in my opinion, there are, you know, elements of our society that, that want that and are driving that. I think a lot of it isn't selflessly motivated. I think there's people that tend that would stand a profit mightily from that situation in terms of agencies and, and that kind of stuff. You know, I think there's people driving this. I think the media is heavily involved. Um, in, in my mind, it's always been that college athletics, whether it be football or cross country or lacrosse, is a part of the educational experience. And that's the way college sports was started. That's what it was supposed to be, right? It wasn't a money-making you know, business. It was a part of the educational experience. And um, in my mind, it should stay that. And it should be, here is, no one's exploiting anybody. This is what you get. It's a scholarship. You can take it or leave it. If you want to be a professional athlete, we understand there's professional leagues for you. Um, if I was, a, for example, a football player, I wouldn't, my beef wouldn't be with the NCAA, it'd be with the NFL. They're the ones that tell me I can't come to the NFL for three years after I graduate high school, right? There's no semi-pro league. There's been talk amongst agents about starting one in the past. It's never taken off. And, you know, without getting too deep into this, I, I really, like I said, I believe a scholarship and an, uh, an education for 95% of, probably 99% of all college athletics is a really good deal. A college athletes is a really good deal. There are some in uh, football and basketball, especially, who might be able to command more more than that. But if your number one guy, your number one football player, you're going to pay, let's pick a number, three hundred thousand to. Well, that means your eighty fifth guy probably isn't getting three hundred thousand, right? He he's probably getting a lot less than that. He maybe after taxes and agent fees and everything else, he's getting a lot less than a scholarship. So I think I also believe this. I think that. Um, the, the narrative out there is that the athletes are making the money and the money is dependent on them. I think the athletes wearing the uniform is what makes the money. Okay. I think if these same athletes went and played a pickup league, the money doesn't follow them. The money stays in the universe at the university because somebody who went to Joe Blow University roots for Joe Blow University to beat Yale, right? They don't care necessarily if it's Robert Johnson at quarterback or John Galt, they want to see their team win and they're rooting for that team. And it's not necessarily personality or player driven. I think it's it's a, an affiliation to that university that drives interest in college sports. So uh, I also think if, if somebody transfers, if a, a marquee player transfers from one place to another, the fans don't follow. They don't say, I was a Tennessee fan, but now since the quarterback went to Oregon, I love that quarterback and I'm now an Oregon fan. I don't think that I think they stay with Tennessee with the backup quarterback, whoever's next. Right. So this idea that um, that all the money comes from the name on the back of the jersey, I don't think is necessarily true. Now, in terms of name, image and likeness, there might be some truth to that. Right. And, and these players, maybe they, they, they deserve the opportunity to profit in a and this is the catchy, tricky point to profit in a legitimate way from their own name, own name image and likeness. 
how do you define legitimate and control legitimate? That's where the problem comes in. That's where the difficulty is. And I, and thank God it's not my you know job to figure that out because it's, you know, how do you stop a mega booster from saying, Hey, you need these four recruits. I'm going to call them up and tell them I'll give them each, you know, $500,000 a year to be on this billboard, you know, and they're going to represent my company on billboard. I'm going to pay them for that 500,000. Right. Where do you define what the legitimate use of a name image and likeness is? That's tough. And you know, it's hard to do. Well, the other question, my question is how that applies to track and field, because when an endorsement company, say like Adidas signs, you know, Kayla Edwards or whatever, they're only signing her essentially for her name image and likeness. Like, you know, some of the, I guess you can argue some of these teams like Brooks Beast or Bauman, they're technically a professional team, but most of these endorsement contracts, I look at track and field, I'm like, are we just going to have pros in college? Like, do you have any idea what what that's going to look like once these name image and likeness rules come into effect? I don't know. I'm assuming they're going to have some type of limitation or some type of, type of governance over this, and no one knows what that's going to look like, right? We'll know in January. Um, but to me it's a rabbit hole. And once you start going down it, it's like, where do you draw lines and how do you enforce them? And, you know, I, I don't know. It, it's, it's, uh, I tend to just not think about it cause it's too stressful. <laughs> yeah. But I guess the, let's return just a minute to what we were talking about a second ago about football. Like, let's say there is no football this year. Do you think, like, do you see sports being cut at Oklahoma State, like, do you think we'll still have cross country next year if we just football's a total loss for 2020? My idea has reiterated his position on this since March 15th. And that is that no matter what happens with football this year, full revenue or zero revenue, we are going to honor all scholarships of the athletes who are here. We're going to extend the years for those that lost the spring season and we're allowed to extend them. We're going to give them their scholarships to come back and, and fulfill their eligibility. And we're not going to lose any sports. We're going to retain all sports. And that's been his mantra. And he hasn't wavered from that. And I have great confidence in him. And I don't know all that he knows about our financial situation. But he has repeated that up until even as recently as last week said the same thing. So I feel pretty confident that we'll be here next year. Yeah. What about other coaches that you've talked to? Because you're pretty plugged in in these coaching circles. Are they yeah, worried? There's some that are pretty worried. I think, you know, if, you know, you guys, you know me a little bit. I, I'm a, I'm a little bit of a, at times a glass half full type of guy and a little bit skeptical and maybe cynical. And so on March 14th, when everything shut down, when the NBA shut down, I was like, that's it. Track's done. And probably fall sports are done. And oh my God, that means football's done. That means we're all done. And I went right to what am I going to do with my life? You know, and it took me about two hours to get there. And so for me, the last six months, things have gotten steadily better. And every time I get a bad bit of bad news, all my coaching colleagues, oh my God, this is happening. I go, yeah, it's way better than I thought it would be. You know, so I've kind of been coming up in my mindset over over the over time, where I think a lot of people are like, what, we're taking salary reductions? These things are happening. You know, there's going to be changes. You know, we took a we or uh, went through and went through our operations bid budget back in June. And we really chopped our operations for track and field, as every sport did here. And we, you know, just went down to the bone, what we absolutely have to have to be competitive if we have seasons. And we cut a lot out. And you start to look at it thinking, you know, we don't waste a lot of money at OSU. In fact, I think going through and doing that exercise with our entire athletic department, I think we saved something like $5 million over our entire budget, which isn't a lot. Um, but... Um, 
there are still areas we can cut and still look at. I think, you know, we can still be competitive, even though we've, you know, I think we, we ended up being 50 to 60% of our operations. We, we found a way to pare down and, you know, it means some things are less than ideal. Like maybe we travel over to meet race and travel back without spending the night or getting there the night before. And, you know, we can make that work. And I started thinking, no, when I first got to OSU, that's the way we did it anyway. A lot of these things we're now going back to when we first won in 2009, it doesn't look much different than what we were doing in 2009 and we were winning championships. So, you know, mm. I think college athletics has become bloated, has become swollen. We think we need to charter places. We think we need to spend extra nights in hotels. We think we need to take everybody and get on a plane and go to California. And, you know, those days are probably gone for a while. I'm assuming. If they end up canceling, you know, NCAAs, what, how will you train your team this fall? What will you guys try to do? Do you try to still peak them for something and they do a time trial in November? How do you Unless the Big 12 locks us out of our facilities like they did in the spring and says you cannot have practice, you cannot be in your facilities, then we are going to run a 10K race on whatever date that is, November 20th, whatever, I can't remember the date is, but we're running a 10K. I told the guys on my team, if we do, we're running to break the course record, which we've only run one race on it and Evan Kerr got one, so he's got the course record. We are going to run that pace through, you know, nine and a half K and then you're going to kick and we're going to work. Someone's breaking that record and that's what we're going to do. So get ready. <laughs> so, okay. There will be a race on the cross country course. I'm assuming. Yes. On the cross country course. All right. So you heard it here first. There will be a race come hello high water, uh, at the site of the national championships yep. this year. Should we start promoting it as the bootleg national championships? And- the bootleg national champions. I'm going to call it the, the, the uh, Rojo invitational. Yeah. What if other schools want to show up? Um, you know, I've thought about that. You know, there are provisions and we never use them in track, so I'm not really familiar how they work, where you can have scrimmages against other teams and not count as NCAA competition or not count as eligibility, you know, and it's very limited. They can't be made public. They can't be media there. You can't post results, all those kinds of things. But we've got some really good programs. You know, Tulsa is just an hour away and they're a very good distance program. Um, you know, we've got some very good programs in the area. Arkansas is like two and a half hours away where maybe we call up those schools. Hey, let's just have a, a practice, a scrimmage, and we won't publicize. Let's go do it and, you know, and run for pride and see what happens. You know, I could envision something like that. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what the provisions will be. I don't know how COVID is going to change the rules. I don't even know what the current rules are. I just know that there are situations where you can have scrimmages against other teams that don't count as, you know, um, uh, NCAA competition. Let me ask you a few COVID questions. John hates when I go into COVID because I like to think of myself as an expert. And I, I like to play it both ways. I'm very personally very careful about COVID, but then when I read about it, I don't I don't think it's dangerous at all for younger people. Or, or, you know, I mean, even today I was reading. Do you guys know this? John, John thinks I make up stuff. But right now, 700,000 worldwide deaths, that's like half of what worldwide dies in car accidents every year, 1.3 million. So the odds are you're not going to know anyone that dies of COVID this year. Right. We've shut down so many segments of, of the population. Um, you know, the question I had, though, was if they test positive, they and their whole pod are out for two weeks. Is the theory there just because it might take two weeks for, for it to show up in their system? Is, is that yep. the thing? Because the, the crazy thing is, though, they might get it and just be to- totally asymptomatic. And particularly, it really impacts, obviously, the people with the comorbidities. And a lot of obese people. So I can see why the football team, you know, is the football team worried about the linemen getting it? I mean, I think these larger individuals have a lot more reason to be worried if they do get it. I can yeah. see the lineman dying. I don't see a cross-country runner dying. 
And yeah, trying- I, think they, I think they are worried about it. For that, exactly what you're saying. I think there are um, some uh, kind of cardiac health implications that are now being seen, and some people have had COVID that um, that you know may affect a football player more than a like you said a distance runner. I don't know. I'm obviously not a doctor, but I know that you know myocarditis, which can be caused by a lot of different viruses. And this is one of them where you get an inflammation of the heart muscle and it can be, you know, a week long, a month long, a year long. You don't know. I think, you know, people sometimes with mono end up with that situation. The common cold, the flu can cause that in people. So I think that's one of the concerns. And I think typically it tends to affect larger people more than smaller people. I think that's true um, or it's more likely. And, that, and again, I don't know the kind of the exact demographic of it, but I, that's my understanding. I, um, you know, as, as, as far as, as COVID goes, you know, I, I had this conversation with my wife and we're trying to decide where we send our kids back to, to daycare. And, you know, my wife wants to do it. She quotes me all these stats about how safe it is for, for kids. And I said, well, look, you know, you're using Norway and saying that it, Norway says that no case of a child, a child being the primary case in their household. And I said, yeah, but Norway shut down schools. So how would a four-year-old be the primary case? The only people they're seeing are their parents. So they're not going to be. Let's see what happens when they open schools. Now you get primary cases. So I'm a little worried about it. My wife thinks I'm a little over the top, but whatever. I told her, I said, look, we go to um, playgrounds with our kids all the time. And she is constantly like, oh, my God. Oh, oh, oh. She's, every time they get on top of something, she's just freaking out and screaming. It drives me nuts because I'll think someone's died. And really, they're just standing on the edge. You know, because she's screaming, like, what? And it's like, oh, nothing. And so I told her, I said, you know how we do go to those playgrounds and you overreact? I get mad at you and say, just quit screaming and let them be kids. And she said, yeah. I said, how many kids do you think die on that playground equipment every year? She said, I don't know. I go, I'll tell you, I need none. Because if they did, they'd rip it out because they'd be afraid of getting sued and say, six kids have died here. Where, you know, Don't let your kids play here. How many kids have been maimed? Very, very few. And yet your reaction when they're on that playground equipment is high alert. You're stressed out all the time. That's me about them going to school. You can show me all the data you want to show me but I'm going to be like Ugh, every day when they go into that classroom. Uh, that's kind of the way uh, my, our family is, except my wife is, is sort of the opposite. She's, well, you no, know, it's exactly the same. My, my wife's willing to let him go to school, but not play in the playground. Yeah. yeah I would turn that on your day. Cause you told me the story about your daughter falling off at this slide one time. She fell off. No, it was a, it was a, a thing. She climbed up on a playground up to the level of the slide. She fell off. Yeah when she was less than two. And she was fine, but uh, this is my, my point on COVID with children. Way more children are dying of accidental deaths and drownings and stuff like that than COVID. Sure. You know, if you're not worried about them dying, you know, and the playground, I, I think their odds of, of getting COVID and dying are way less than them getting hurt seriously on a playground. But the question is, you know, could they bring it home to you or me or Etc. Yeah, and, and I just, teachers, I, teachers are generally old. I think we don't know what the long-term ramifications are going to be. Maybe it's going to be nothing. Maybe if a kid gets it, there's not going to be any chance of long-term cardiac damage or vascular disease or anything like that. Maybe there's no risk, but we don't know, and we're not going to know for another couple of years what this looks like because, you know, as so far we've kind of protected kids. Now this big push is put them back in schools because none of them have it. Well, none of them have it because we canceled school. Maybe they won't get it. I don't know, but you know. It's just like anything else. I'm going to do everything in my power to keep them safe. I'm going to make them wear a seatbelt or right now ride in their car seats. If they go near a pool, they're going to wear a life jacket. Whether they can swim or not, at this age, they're going to wear a life jacket. I'm going to be watching them because I couldn't live with myself 
if I got lazy and said, ah, don't wear your life jacket. I'm going to go in here and send this text to John Galt. I came out and they were, you know, in, in trouble in the pool. Same thing with this. I, I couldn't live with myself if I sent them back to, to daycare because it was inconvenient to restructure my life a little bit in a way to protect them. And they got something that ended up being long-term. Maybe they'll never, maybe it won't happen, but I'm not taking the risk. I'm going to do everything I can to keep them safe. So speaking of kids, one thing as a new father myself, I was wondering, you won those national championships before you had kids. Last yeah. couple of years, your team maybe hasn't been at such a high level. But oh. I'm thinking the kids are getting a little bit older now. Do you think that's impacted your recruiting? You haven't had quite as much time. You guys, got, sure. you had this new cross-country course. You spent millions of dollars on it. You were going to be showcasing your program, you know, really to the world this fall. Do, do you think that this, you know, Oklahoma State will be on the rise in part because of your, your children are getting a little bit older and more self-sufficient? 100% sure. That's 100% a factor. And for every mother or father who's a coach in the NCAA, who I, in the years past when I was single, thought, come on, it's not that big a deal. I apologize. Because trying to raise a family and be a good parent and not be one of those coaches that looks back 20 years later and thinks, man, I gave up a relationship with my own kids to have a relationship with all the kids that came through my program. You know? Um, man, it's hard and it's exhausting. And, um, you know, I get home and think I'll make recruiting calls tonight. Yeah, right. You're not making recruiting calls with a two year and a four year old there. And you think I'll wait till they go to bed. Well, half the time, my, my daughter won't go to bed before 10 and then I can't call, you know, it's like, it's hard. And, um, you know, I think, you know, not, I'm, I think a lot of times women end up being the primary caregivers to their kids. And these women who coach, who are parents, are, are, are superhuman. You know, I don't know how they do it. People like my friend of mine, Andrew Girl McDonough or, or Gilda G. Taylor, or some of these women, Helen Layman Winters, who have raised great kids and been incredible coaches at the same time. I don't know how they do it. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. And, um, you know, I want to be a great dad to my kids and I'm trying to do everything I can to be there for them. And I have a wife who, who, who busts her butt to do the same. So we're a good team, but it's exhausting. And my team has suffered. I am not the coach I was. I, you know, I had, we've had some down years and part of it is I'm not giving, or wasn't giving the same attention, not only to recruiting, but the personal one-on-one attention to kids, to the kids on my team I used to. Now I've kindly kind of started to figure out how to balance this now. And we've, we've got a, we've got it rolling again. I think we're better, but, um, but you're right. Rojo, I want to ask you, you refer to yourself as a new father. Your son's almost three years old. How long do you get to use the word new father? Well, you're just, that? I mean, you're figuring it out. I mean, I think till he's kind of self-sufficient, I think around three, I, I remember my cousin turned three. I kind of figured she could do everything. He's getting yeah. to, that, to that stage, but. But every stage is new, right? And every stage you're new at. So when he was a newborn, you were new at being a newborn father. When he's three, you're new at being a, uh, it has different challenges, right? Your kid's. As they get older, they need more time. And they're aware of when you're sitting with them, but you're on your phone, right? And they're aware of when you're distracted or you're not present. And I, I try to put my phone down and not touch it once I get home. And, you know, especially right now with all this uncertainty, it's really hard to do. The, the best parenting advice I got, I should give a shout out to him. This guy has a hydration company. He said they'd rather have 15 minutes of your undivided attention than two hours of you playing That's right. your phone every That's exactly right. So speak, speaking of enough parenting talk, John gets mad when I go into parenting. <laughs> I'm fascinated by about recruiting. I mean, you're at one of the top programs in the country. You're obviously recruiting the top talents. So it might be a little bit easier so you can see who was one of the top guys in the country or gals as a 
as a, you know, because normally you recruit off your, their junior year time. So people don't have their junior year times. So you could go back to their sophomore year times and kind of figure out who's the best in the country. But how is this going to change things? I mean, I think for distance coaches, people can still do time trials. You can somewhat do it, but how are the sprints and jumps and hurdle coaches going to be, be recruiting off no time when there's no times from last year? It, it's hard for the coaches. It's harder for the student athletes. I feel bad for these kids, especially kids who tend to develop, you know, at 16, 17, 18 years old, who are trying to say, hey, recruit me based on what I did as a freshman or a sophomore. And you're looking at it going, you know, I'll use it, I won't use any names. I have a, one young woman I'm recruiting who's run, she ran 209 as a 16 year old. And I think 57 and maybe 437 in the 15. All pretty good times for a 15, 16 year old. And I'm thinking, I'm going to recruit her like she's a top recruit, a full scholarship. Because as a 16 slash 17 year old, I'm thinking she's probably going to run 207, 56, and 430 maybe. And then in her, and then we'll sign her. And then her last year, she's going to run 205, 206, and you know, and she's going to be worth that. Well, now I'm trying to decide, and and her dad is really pressing me. You know, what are you going to offer her? And and, and she's international, so they're just figuring out how the NCAA works. And I just realized you can make a written offer as of August 1st. I said, can, but won't, because I, you know, I can't do that because, you know, he said, well, you said before she was going to be a big scholarship athlete. I said, she was, I told you she was on the progression to be that, but I don't know. Did she continue to progress like we hope she might, or is she one that maybe just hit kind of a plateau and that's where she's going to be? It's really hard to know. And so I feel bad for her. And I, I'm honest with them. I said, I'll be honest with you. You can go do, you said, you can go do a film time trial or something like that, where it can show that okay, maybe I didn't go to 206, but I can run 285 or whatever with, you know, some boy in my group leading me or whatever, at least shows me that there's been some progression still and we can still make this um, deal. The other thing I told him is, look, the other thing we can do is we give five-year scholarships and typically ours say, you know, X amount of scholarship all the way through. What I can do is say, you get this for the first year and after that we drop you way down. And then if you come in and we have some some agreement that if you run at this level or meet these standards, we can increase your following years back up to match your first year. I'd be more comfortable doing that than say, here's a four-year deal based on what you did as a freshman, sophomore. And I'm assuming you've progressed the way I thought you would as a, as a junior, senior. So I felt it's hard for the, it's going to be hard for us. It, I feel bad for these student athletes that, you know, like she says, well, you know, I would do whatever it takes and I just don't have the opportunity. I can't even get to a track in my country. So how am I going to prove that? And another guy um, sent me a video of him running a, a 3K time trail on the roads. I'm like, that's nice, but I don't know if that's 2,800 or 3,200, you know? And it's, it's, it's good, but and your time was, was impressive, but the course was up and down. And, you know, I, I, honestly, I cannot base a scholarship on that. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't want to be a kid in college right now, but being a college coach, I mean, I can't imagine all the different things you're juggling, especially you guys hosting a bunch of meets like this. This has to be sort of the most trying, stressful period of your career. Yeah. You know, it's funny. Right before we got you, we got a commitment from a young lady, a distance runner. And um, again, we had to kind of go based on what she had done in the past and some time trials she put together. She kind of put together this spring and you know, I told myself at some point you just have to take a chance. And this girl, you know, she was running really, really well. We just got to go for it. You know, at this point, let's, you know, we swing and miss, we swing and miss. I love her personality. I love who she is as a student. She's done really good things at that point in her career. In fact, what she had done 
as a sophomore were good enough, even if those were her times as a senior, that we'd say, let's give her a big scholarship. So, and this girl somehow got it done without any official visits, without meeting the team, without just, just by Zoom calls and putting her on, let her talk to the girls on our team. We did a Zoom where we took, showed her around campus and, and she got it done. I think there's a lot of them have kind of figured out they're probably not taking visits, right? Not going to be able to take visits. And so I think we're going to start seeing some commitments start trickling in now. Let's talk a minute about Sinclair Johnson, your most recent star at Oklahoma State. Yeah. Went pro early and has now joined Nike the uh, Bowerman Track Club, coached by yeah. your old friend and rival, Jerry Schumacher. Um, has she, uh, you were still coaching her, right, this spring? Did she move to Portland? To tell us, you know, when did you stop? She's still here. Um, she's going to stay here. The plan right now, she wants to stay here one more. She wanted to stay here through the Olympic, Olympic Games and then move up to Portland when she had some downtime. She could get in, get into a new system. Although, you know, I don't think it's going to be that entirely new. Again, it's the same philosophy and and the kind of the way we, we don't might do the same mechanics. I think there's probably a little more volume, a little more volume at, at, at quality up there than what we would do it with college kids, you know, uh, but it's very similar. And um, so her that was her plan. And then the Olympics got postponed and she still thought about it and said, you know, I just don't have time to have a red shirt year or a, a adaptive year. Do you think I should stay here one more year? And I said, you know, I think you know, it's a great group and you benefit from being there, but it really comes down to what you think is going to be good for you. Um, you obviously ran well here in our system. You ran four with three and two flat. Um, you're going to have to do better than that, but maybe you can even maybe you could have the year you ran four with three. Cause I think she was 60 flat on her last quarter when she ran four with three. So um, I think she just decided that she wants to, to stick it out here now through the Olympic Games in, in Tokyo, if there is one. Um, and if there isn't, go up no matter what happens after that. Um, that could change. We've also now, I think we're talking about kind of doing a hybrid where when Bowerman goes to their uh, altitude camps, she'll join them and at least start to get the feel for what it's like, the personalities, get to know Jerry as a, as a coach and an individual so she can feel comfortable. You know, part of it's probably a comfort zone thing, and she's done really well here. And I think Stillwater is, um, you know, obviously a small college town where she is, you know, a two-minute jog from every single thing she needs in terms of medical uh, facilities, the runs, and it, it's very simple, very easy. And, you know, I think there's some some comfort in that. But, yeah, the, the, the plan is to get her up there as soon as she feels like it, it fits into her schedule. So – not to criticize Nike, but so she's based in Oklahoma. She's still at Oklahoma State, but she flew out to Portland to run a 210 800 and a 127 400 last week. So 210 600. Oh, correct. 210 600. So that's just they're worried about the contracts being reduced if they don't race. Like, can you explain that or is that over your I'm not sure what that's that's kind of um, between uh, her and her agent and, and Nike, and I'm not sure, but there was. There seems to be a lot of that going on. I think if you look at the sprint meet that was put on in Texas earlier this year, it looked very similar. I think there was five or six competitions down there that, um, you know, if you look at it closely, it's like, hmm, well, what was this? It's weird. I'm all for sports. I want football. I want the NFL. I want it to be back. But I'm also like, okay, if there's no reason really to do this, right? We know that Sinclair Johnson can run a – 210, 600 meters. This to me just seems insane. And then John's like, you're always going against Nike. I'm like, I can't help it. I mean, they sponsor more athletes. So they give me more 
<laughs> no, I, I agree. This is idiotic. It makes no sense. It's not benefiting them by getting her exposure. It's not benefiting her. It's it's a stupid situa- situation. It, it, I mean, she, she was so good at the state level, but there's so many good USA 1500 meter runners. I think we had nine at 401 or better in the last year yeah. or two. So yeah. is she intimidated by that? Excited by that? I mean... Well, I think if you watch her USA's this year, at the, at the, at the, she was fourth and she missed making the team by what it was, 0.12 seconds or 0.09 seconds or whatever. And she was right there. And I think, to be perfectly honest, and I don't like to criticize people I coach, but I've told this to her face and I think she understands it, that she ran all year like she, with confidence and like she belonged, like she knew she was running to win and she was undefeated doing that. And then she got there and I kind of feel like maybe a little starstruck, maybe a little intimidated in the first half of the race and really wasn't in great position most of the race and certainly with 200 to go and had to do a lot of work in and out, kind of moving through the field, trying to get herself in a position where she could kick for, for a spot on the team. And then even in the end, had to go wide. She went wider than everybody else trying to get around and missed by, you know, whatever it was, it was a tenth of a second, give or take. And, um, you know, I think she was only two tenths or three tenths off the win. So she was right there um, and beat some good people. I think tactically she made some mistakes. And I think she learned from that. I think she knows. And um, we had a specific race strategy. They said, do this thing and you will make the team. And we didn't do that. We didn't execute that plan. And afterwards, even she said, you told me to do that. And if I had, you're right. I think I'd have made it. And so um, – you know, whatever. I think it's a learning experience. It was good for her. Um, it would have been great to make that team, but sometimes coming up just short is the best thing that can happen to you. Well, you said earlier you didn't want your college athletes to go a long time without racing, but she didn't race. She hasn't been doing time trials like the rest of the Bowerman women. She hasn't been racing. No, she did. She did time trials. We just didn't publicize them. Oh, okay. So how was her fitness this, this COVID year? Well, we, in the spring, we opened up with an 800, and she went 203.40, I think which was the third fastest time of her career. You know, she went, uh, she had a, a two flat last year out at, um, out at the sunset meet in the summer. And she went 202 on a relay split at Drake. But other than that, it's the fastest she'd ever run. And that was kind of just like, hey, let's just see where we are. So that was good. Then we came back into the thousand and she went 239, which isn't all that impressive. It was faster than she ever, she had 243 was her PR. Um, except that I think, you know, she was, a, again, it was a time trial. She was a very timid. I think she came through in 210 to 11 and closed in 28, 29 or 30. So it was, I, I think, had we been a little more aggressive, um, that could have gone a lot better. And then we had the plan to run a 1200 and we were kind of shooting for 315, 314, and then to come back with a final 800, we were trying to break two. But a lot happened societally right in that time frame, which had a big impact on her kind of um, motivation and energy levels and stress levels. And um, I think she just said, there's a lot going on right now. And I will, we'll, we tried the 1200 and she came through pretty well on pace to run the 315 and her last quarter just kind of lost the fight. I think she went three, uh, 18 or 19. And then she said, I, I just need a break. I, I just need a come off this it's been high stress high anxiety just i think with all that was going on in society at that time was was stressful 
All right. Well, Dave, you've been very generous with your time, almost an hour here. Uh, I think it's about time to let you go unless Robert has any last questions for you. John, we didn't get the total number figure, dollar figure spent on the cross-country course. Oh, yeah. Well, get, lay it on us, Dave. Do you have the number? We did about $4 million in improvements to it. But talking to my AD, AD, the land value is about $20 million. So in his eyes, it's about a $20 to $24 million facility. And it's dedicated cross-country. Um, we also spend a lot of money maintaining it each year. We have a guy we pay a full-time salary, uh, a, a, a course uh, manager who runs it, maintains it. He was a former golf course uh, superintendent. He's now our cross-country course superintendent. We hired him away from a golf course. Um, we irrigate it. The entire thing's irrigated all year long. Well, not all year, because here we have Bermuda grass. So in the, in the winter months, it goes dormant. We don't irrigate it then. But from basically March until um, November, it's irrigated. That has a significant cost. It's mowed, maintained. Um, you know, we put a lot of money into it to begin with. And now we're paying each year to maintain it at a pretty high level. Well, let's hope that whether it's this fall or at some point in the next few years, we let's run make it down there for an NCAA championships and hopefully we can check it out in person. Yeah, I'm I'm hoping we put in bids for the next, you know, the next four years about to be awarded. And I kind of talked to Jeff once and said, Hey Jeff, you know, we might not get the championship this year. You, you could do me a solid and kind of pointed out to the committee that we were awarded it. We might not get it. It'd be great to get one of the next four. So he was like, well, the committee's already met. We've already discussed it. Unfortunately for you, you missed that boat, but, um, but don't worry. We are aware of the situation and that came up in our discussions. And so I don't know, you know, whether we'll get one or not. I'm hoping we do get one of the next four. Um, oh, they owe it to you for sure. If this year's canceled, they need to give you like 2022. I think that's only fair. That's what I was hoping. I was kind of trying to angle for that, but Jeff kind of, you know, just pretty high, uh, pretty high ethical standards. And he, he just didn't want to have that conversation with me. He said, you know, the committee's already met. We've discussed it. And we're, we are, are fully aware of the situation. And we know you've been for all four years. And yes, you've got a great course and we're aware. So, you know, he wouldn't tip his hand one way or the other or the committee's hand. Um, but I'm hoping we get one of the next four. All right. Well, appreciate uh, all the updates and, you know, Best of luck to whatever, if, you know, if you guys, do you have a race on the schedule? What's your first race that you're supposed to be running? September 1st here on our course. September 1st. All right. Well, yeah, best of luck. Hopefully uh, you guys get to use it. Yeah. Thanks, you guys. Appreciate it.